A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone's worried about money right now, but Money Clinic is here to help. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's Consumer Editor. Even if you don't want to come on as a guest, we'd like to hear your ideas for money-related topics you'd like to learn more about on the show. Email us via money at ft.com and let us know what's on your mind. Could 2023 be a year of change for investors? 2022 was a turbulent year. The war in Ukraine, soaring inflation and a string of interest rate rises have resulted in economic uncertainty and market volatility. Plenty of investors who got started under lockdown may have seen the value of their portfolios fall. And with a challenging outlook ahead, perhaps you're looking to change your investment strategy in the new year or are wondering whether to stick with investing at all. On this episode of Money Clinic, we're going to hear from an all-star panel of the FT's investment writers. What did they think the year ahead will bring for investors? And where might the opportunities lie? Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast about personal finance and investing from the Financial Times. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. Before we get going, a disclaimer. We will be talking about investments in this podcast, but as you know by now, the first rule of investing is always do your own research. Our discussion today is intended for educational purposes and is not intended as an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. Now that's over with, let's meet our panel of investment writers, starting with Stuart Kirk. Now, Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Glenn. You've recently started writing a new weekly investment column for the FT called Skin in the Game. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the idea is twofold. I think it's to bring almost 30 years of professional and institutional investment experience to a wider um, audience. And the gag is, unlike most investment advisors, is that I'm going to show people what I'm actually invested in myself. Now, Rosie Carr, the editor of The Investor's Chronicle, we worked together for many years. It's the FT's weekly publication for retail investors. Rosie, a joy to have you on the show. What would you say are the big issues on your readers' minds right now? Hi, Claire. Yeah, great to be here with you, Stuart and Rob. Um, The big issues for our readers, certainly the key one remains inflation and then high interest rates, followed by recession, which we may already be in. 
because none of these things are particularly helpful for companies. Um, I suppose one thing we can say about the coming recession in the UK or the one that we're in is that although it's expected to be longer than downturns elsewhere, the Bank of England says that it's probably going to last right through the first half of 2024. It's not expected to be that deep, which is at least one positive. A chink of of sunshine amidst (laughs) the gloom. Now, last but absolutely not least, we have friend of the podcast, Rob Armstrong. Rob, you're joining us from the New York office. You write our unhedged newsletter and you're our financial editor in the US. Now, from a retail investor's point of view, how does it look from the other side of the Atlantic? Well, the situation is a little bit different uh, from the UK in that the US economy has been surprisingly resilient thus far. Mm. And yet we hear this word recession, recession, recession. Uh, The Fed is, our, our central bank is making scary noises. So we're leading this kind of double life where everybody is waiting for the recessionary shoe to drop and it sort of refuses to do so. Now, in a few words, each of you, what would you say has been the toughest thing for investors to deal with this year? We've talked a little bit about inflation. Stuart, what else would you would you pick that's been particularly challenging for you? What we're often told is to have a diversified portfolio. And so one of the toughest things this year is that everything has fallen effectively. And usually bonds um, counteract equities and vice versa. But it's just been tough in the sense that everything has fallen. And so I guess the key question for us um, for this for next year is whether that will change. Mm. And Rosie and Rob, what would you um, add to that in a few words, the toughest thing investors have had to deal with? Yeah, I think for a lot of the new investors coming into the market, they got for the first time a nasty reminder that, you know, some things in the market, they they don't go up a straight line forever. Yeah, and it was a very it was a very tough year for certain types of companies, small caps, growth companies and private equity, because investors began to really worry about how these companies were going to manage the higher cost of servicing debt. Um, and you know, and also might find it hard to raise new funding, and that's their lifeblood. Rob, what would you add? There was a handful of stocks that have worked so brilliantly well for the last decade. And I'm thinking of uh, not the speculative tech companies, but the great big ones, the so-called FANGs, uh, Alphabet, Apple, Facebook, uh, Google. And those have been just money good for so long. And the most extreme case being Facebook, but all of them are down worse than the market. So it was like one of your North Stars, which was these extremely high quality, extremely profitable, extremely large American tech companies. Uh, The bottom has kind of fallen out and it really shakes your your faith, I think. Mm, The North Star has headed south. Now, as we look at the year ahead in 2023, how do each of you feel that investment landscape might change? What are the kind of things that investors listening to the show should be looking out for? The outlook for 2023 is probably better than 2022, although not immediately. You know, inflation is still a problem. But it is set to fall. And we've seen that the rate of price rises is already falling in figures released this week in the US and the UK. That means ultimately that interest rates will also peak, which will produce, deliver a boost to the market. And 
and it'll be very good for growth companies. But we have to bear in mind there is a recession. We can't ignore that. And that's going to put pressure on company earnings. Just recessions are bad news for companies. People cut back on their spending. They delay purchases. But certain parts of the market will be fine. You know, it's much more difficult to cut back on essentials, consumer staples and, and health products. Stuart, did you want to add anything to that about how the investment landscape might change? Let's start with the big ones. So the biggest asset class in the world is bonds, 130 trillion or so. Um, I'm pretty positive on fixed income for next year. I think um, inflation doesn't look like it's going to be quite as brutal as people may have feared. And then the next biggest asset class is equities. And equities Mm. takes its lead from America. And American equities takes its lead from those big tech firms that Rob was talking about. Here I'm less certain. I think it depends on whether you think those companies are now good value or not. Um, I'm still pretty old school in thinking that you can value these companies using old school metrics. And on those metrics, some of these companies still look expensive to me. Staying with you, Stuart, talking about how investors are shifting their strategy in response to how markets are changing. It's interesting that you mentioned bonds because younger investors do tend with their stocks and shares ISAs to focus more on equities and less so on bonds. Stuart, do you think there's more of an argument for retail investors to look at bonds in the year ahead? Why might they do that? And what are the pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, bonds aren't as fun as talking about Apple and talking about crypto and talking about gold and talking about Warren Buffett. Um, fixed income assets and securities are pretty tricky. It's duration this, term premia that, maturity this. It's, it's hard stuff. But it is the world's biggest asset class. And that asset class has been really important throughout history is providing a counterweight to equities. They've tended to go up when equities have gone down, although that hasn't happened in the last 15 or 20 years or so. And they've Mm. also given you a risk-free return when interest rates were higher that kept kept you in food food and electricity year in, year out. And that's why people like our parents have always owned them. Now, the trouble is that equities have shot the lights out over the last 20 years. Interest rates have been very low and there hasn't really been a huge amount of reason to own them, although they have gone up nicely. Um, But I think now is the time for most listeners to this program to actually get onto Wikipedia and work out what drives bond markets. And there are two big bond markets. There's the government bond market lending to Mm. Uncle Sam or to um, the UK government. And then there's corporate bonds. This is companies raising money. And they both have their attractions. And they're both yielding, paying you a higher rate of interest than they have in the last 20 years or so. If I could just follow up on Stuart's point there, uh, I'm going to use one of those wretched technical terms that he uh, just referred to, which is, at least in the United States, we have what's known as an inverted yield curve, which is a weird thing in which a short-term bond pays more interest than a long-term bond. And Mm -hmm. what that means is you can actually get a pretty good yield right now from uh, a one or a two year or even a shorter duration than that uh, full faith and credit U.S. Treasury bond. So for investors who, who, for whatever reason, in some part of their portfolio, can't take much risk right now, maybe they're looking to buy a house uh, in a year or two and don't want to risk their capital or so forth, there is, for the first time in a very long time, an opportunity to buy a short-term bond 
and actually get a yield that might mean a little something. So I think uh, for a certain subset of investors, this is a real uh, cause for rejoicing. Now, Rosie, feel free to give us your thoughts on on bonds, but also dividend income, another category of um, investment investment loveliness that's traditionally appealed more to older investors, but maybe now younger investors are being turned on to the benefits. Yeah, that's true. And one thing that the UK market is really good at is dividends. Um, the UK market, the the you know the FTSE 100, didn't have such a terrible time this year, and that's partly because of its companies that pay dividends. Mm, the, big the banks, quality, the, the oil b- companies, the, the, <laughs> the energy companies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a good year for them. And the UK market is stuffed full of them. We don't have so many tech companies, but we do have the old-fashioned fossil fuel providers and so on. Now, next year, even if there's pressure on some of those companies, and we've already seen that in the energy sector, it won't stop the payments, they may be reduced slightly, but most of these companies have really good earnings cover, so we'd expect them to keep paying out dividends. Now, let's talk for a little bit about passive funds. Now, that strategy has served people quite well over the past few decades, but um, panel, do you think it can stand the test of time? I do, I do. I think passive funds are a brilliant thing to have in your portfolio, and for a lot of investors, it's probably the only way they're ever going to invest. I think for people who have a bit more time and want to stock pick and you like the idea that you might be able to beat the market, then, you know, again, start with passives, build on that with active funds, and then start picking individual shares. And using active funds, you're going to learn a huge amount from the managers, from the, you know, newsletters to people about why they're focusing on certain sectors. So there are lots of benefits to doing that. Mm. Stuart? Yeah, I mean, I would be even more aggressive. And speaking as someone who's managed active, active equity portfolios his whole life, I'm the strange person to say I would recommend no one ever does so um, and no one ever buys them. Um, in a good year, active managers, half of them may beat the index. Most years, two thirds of them fail to beat the index. They're expensive. Um, the bog standard funds in my pension fund charge a percent a year. If you think you're only going to get six and seven percent real return, that's a big chunk of your annual return. I think for the average investor, there's absolutely no reason on earth why you would actually choose an active manager or pick stocks yourself. Um, it's almost impossible to do. The academic literature is clear on this. Um, and you save the fees as well. Wow. And um, Rob, do you have a view on, on passives? Well, I would echo what Stuart said there. And there's plenty of work to do as uh, a a manager of your own portfolio or a planner of your own retirement, once you've taken the stock picking decision out of the picture, you still have to think about how you all- allocate your um, capital across different kinds of passive funds, between different kinds True. of asset classes, between different countries. So it's not like path you can just have passive funds and turn your brain off. You're still got plenty to think about and work on and have fun with once you go uh, the passive way. Now, for those investors who do like to take a bit more of an active approach to investing, let's move on to where the best opportunities for investors may yet emerge in the year ahead. Rosie, what sectors and parts of the world are your readers the most interested to read more about in the pages of the Investors Chronicle? Well, I suppose the the things to note about going into a recession or a bear market is that 
recessions impact sectors in different ways. So it's a reason why people should always have, you know, good diversification in the portfolios. The UK market also only accounts for about three to four percent of the global stock market. So you should have exposure to US, which is the other key or the biggest global um, equities market. China, you know, the rest of the world, you have to have exposure to that. Another thing is that in a bear market, when everything is getting marked down, it creates an opportunity to buy into quality companies at discounted prices. Mm. Ultimately, there are going to be really good buying opportunities because troubled markets make uh, investors nervous. And that means falling share prices. So there will be companies with no underlying health problems. And that's an ideal time to pick up those those quality shares at a discounted price. Mm. Now, turning to Rob first and then Stuart, what kind of things are on your watch lists at the moment? Claire, for the last 15 years, there's been one piece of financial advice that has really worked. And it's three words long. And those three words were buy American stocks. And anything else you did besides that for the last 15 years was a suboptimal strategy. Uh, Foreign stocks, bonds, anything. We just got murdered by American stocks. Emerging markets, wrong. China, wrong. Europe, wrong. Japan, wrong. Uh, So what's interesting is after 15 years of that, the difference in valuation between America and the rest of the world uh, is getting pretty high. But, uh, you know, that, that question, can the rest of the world catch up with America? That's that's kind of number one on my radar going into next year. Mm, and of course, for UK investors, we have been more insulated um, because of the um, currency effect. Um, you know, the S&P may have fallen, but because of the currency translation and the strong dollar, UK investors haven't seen um, such a big um, fall in any US investments that they might hold. Um, Stuart, what would you add to the kind of areas that you're looking at and will be writing about, no doubt, in your column in the new year? Yes, I completely agree with Rob. You want a big chunk of your money in US equities. Um, But as I wrote in my column, I think Asian equities for the first time are looking more interesting. Mm. Um, People say that all the time and they have done well. They just haven't done well as US stocks. But I think now they're even cheaper than they have been in the past. Um, They're about a third as expensive as US ones on an earnings basis, about half price on an asset basis. Um, Apropos our discussion about dividend, they actually had the most superior dividend growth over the last five years, better than Europe, better than the US. Um, They generate more free cash flow um, per unit of equity than anywhere else um, outside of Latin America. Uh, So I'm not saying they're going to outperform the US, but I think they don't usually like a strong US dollar and they don't usually like high US rates. But if those things have peaked or near the peak, I think Mm -hmm. um, it might be an interesting place to fish. Now, one of your first columns in the FT, which actually really divided opinion among our readers, were about your views on UK stocks, as as Rosie was saying, a very unloved area of the market. Tell us a little bit about why you do have faith in the UK economy. Yeah, so I think the UK is suffering a bit its reputation has taken a, a bit of a sully post-Brexit. Politics looks a bit of a shambles. I don't think people locally quite realise what a laughing stock we seem to be outside of the country. But that's very, very different to the question of do company management teams care about shareholders? 
And this mm-hmm. is a very important thing for listeners to, to understand. There's a big difference in GDP growth rates, revenue growth, etc., and whether management teams really care about equity owners. And one of the reasons why the U.S. has been such a strong performer, as Rob said, is that company management teams in the U.S. really, really care about returns on equity. And I would say U.K. bosses do as well. Mm. And Rob, you were based in London um, with me in the FT office for, for many years. Do you, do you hanker after um, having any UK stocks in your portfolio or are you going to avoid, avoid, avoid? Uh, they look cheap. I would, you know, I would put, you know, I would sort of say I'm interested in, as I said, in value stocks over the next couple of years. And the UK, whether it's a historical coincidence or not, has a lot of those. And so owning part of a market with high quality companies at low valuations in industries that seem uh, poised to take back some of the underperformance they've had in recent years, I think it's appealing. Mm. And Rosie, I want to bring you in here because we haven't yet mentioned investment trusts on the podcast. And that's something I know as a former IC writer that your readers are very, very keen on. What do you think the year ahead might might bring for the world of investment trusts? Yeah, our readers do love investment trusts, um, mostly because of the really good returns they get from them. That's partly to do with their structure, the fact that they can use gearing, which is borrowing money to invest, and because they have boards of management. So there's an extra layer of accountability. And they cover all markets, all asset classes. They're a great way for investors to cover all sectors that they're unfamiliar with. Now, lots of them at the moment are on wider discounts than at the start of the year. And that means that, you know, if the UK market as a whole is on a discount and good value, well, so are these trusts. You're getting more for your money than you're spending. Now, another theme that we haven't talked about is the green theme, ESG. Plenty of our listeners are invested in ESG funds, but the energy crisis has put some big obstacles in the path to net zero. The FT reported recently the UK is about to open its first coal mine in over 30 years. Stuart, ESG, it's a top topic for you. Um, what, what are your thoughts on how this, this market might pan out? You're absolutely right. 2022 was a nightmare. Um, for two reasons. One, um, the brown stuff did well, the oil companies and the gas companies and the industrials and that sort of stuff. Um, and on the other side, tech did badly and tech generally scores very, very well on ESG scores because it's asset light and, and doesn't belch things into the atmosphere. So it's mm. been, a, been, a, been, a, been a double blow for, for ESG funds. So you could actually think that 2023 might not be so bad. Um, but you really need to make a call on those two big sectors. Indeed, some of those ESG funds were basically 50% tech. So you're really not buying the future of the planet a lot of the time. You're buying a tech fund with a bit of farmer and consumer in them. So unless you've got a strong view on those sectors and conversely energy, um, only then can you make a call on whether you think those ESG funds will outperform a non-ESG fund. Mm, I mean, I've never bought an ESG fund. It's not because I don't care about the planet. It's because I'm more concerned about greenwash and whether investors are being sold something that truly is ESG, as you say, or um, being sold something that they don't really understand. Rosie and, and Rob, I don't know if you've got any thoughts you want to throw in on ESG. Yeah, it's been a very complicated area. Um, even the darkest green funds, if you could call them that, um, some of them hold fossil fuel companies. And that 
probably isn't what the investor is expecting. So you have to be really thorough and find out whether the fund, you know, matches your requirements. Does it have strict mm. exclusion policies or is it engaging with companies to help them change and therefore arguing that it's okay to have these these awful companies that the investor doesn't want? I think things are improving here and I think the FCA has said that it's going to try and improve labelling, but it's a very slow-moving market. Mm. Well, certainly we're all, worried. we're all very worried about climate change and regardless of the greenwashing, um, that doesn't change. Now, before we go today, I am going to ask all of you for the message that you would pass on to young investors at the moment. As we said at the top of the show, in the last few years under lockdown, lots and lots of our listeners have got into investing for the first time. But 2022 has been a real test of their patience. Lots will have lost money. Many are wondering whether to stick with it or not. Shall I start with you, Rob? What would your message be to young investors? What I would say to young investors is uh, you should be waving a banner from the point of view exclusively of your stock portfolio, of course, and putting aside all other considerations. You should be waving a banner that says, yay, recession, yay, stock market crash. Let's have terrible things happen. Because one thing we know in the, the, the investment world is extremely uncertain, but this we know. When you pay lower prices today, your long-term returns, 10 years, 20 years down the road, are going to be higher. Stuart, how can you, how can you build on that? What's your message to, to young investors? You can't build on that. That's, that, that's all you need to know. Um, and on a practical basis, you, you really need to remember Rob's words when a market is having a really bad day, because that's when you are desperate to sell. And what happens is the market then recovers quickly the next day or the next week. And those rebound days, um, contribute between a third and a half of all returns. Very good. And Rosie, last but not least, what is your message for younger investors? Number one, do not sell up and get out of the market. Um, and regardless of all the problems that we have at the moment, if you're not in, you can't reap the rewards. And we all know that equities deliver the best rewards long term. So take a long term view. Young investors have time on their side and they can invest in these really exciting big themes of technology, infrastructure, healthcare and so on. I mean, the only thing that I would, would add to that as my own message for young investors is make sure that you've got an adequate emergency fund. And my other message would be automate. If you've looked at your budget and you can afford to make some regular investments um, every month, then set it up on an investment platform, make a regular investment plan so you don't have to think about it and that the money just goes out every month as you are sleeping. All that remains for me to do is to thank our amazing panel, Rob Armstrong from the FT's New York office, Stuart Kirk, our FT investment columnist, and Rosie Carr, the editor of The Investor's Chronicle. Good fun, Claire. Thank you, Claire. Thanks, Claire. Been a pleasure. That's it for Money Clinic this week with me, Claire Barrett. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. We're always looking to chat with people about their money issues. If you're interested in being part of a future episode or if you just have an idea for one, then email us at money at ft.com. Take a peek at our website, ft.com slash money, grab a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper or follow me on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. I'm at Claire B. 
Money Clinic was produced in London by Persis Love. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner and our editor is Manuela Saragosa. You heard original tunes this week by Metaphor Music. And finally, just to repeat our disclaimer, Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week and very good luck with all of your investments in 2023. Goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.